Welcome to Kidney Commute, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation, driven by the interprofessional team with emphasis on the patient voice. In each episode, we will incorporate the perspectives of the different members of the kidney team as well as the patient. Join our huddle on all things kidney health and allow new perspectives to inspire collaboration in your practice. Eligible listeners can earn credit along the way. The Kidney Commute, a continuing education podcast planned by the team for the team. Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Commute, an NKF interprofessional podcast. My name is Dory Minch, and I'm a transplant social worker at Wake Forest Baptist Hospital in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'll be the host of today's discussion. In this episode, we will discuss the various treatment modalities available to your ESKD patients. We'll outline why some treatment options may be better than others for a specific patient and how treatment planning can improve outcomes. Joining me today is an esteemed group of panelists who I'll now ask to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Osama El-Shami, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I'm a nephrologist. Hello, my name is Anabel Viruete. I am a registered dietitian and an assistant professor at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, and an adjunct at the Division of Nephrology at Indiana University School of Medicine. And I've been doing research in renal nutrition for the last 10 years. Hi, I'm Mita Bronstein. I'm an LCSW. I specialize in dialysis, and I've been working at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan for the last 15 years. My name is Andrew Thompson. I'm a nephrology physician assistant working with Southern Indiana Nephrology and Hypertension in Southern Indiana. I see outpatient nephrology patients across five different satellite clinics, including in-center and uh, peritoneal dialysis patients. Hi, I'm Melissa Cook. I'm a certified dialysis nurse. I work at DCI Home Training in Murfreesboro. I train patients in peritoneal dialysis as well as home hemodialysis. And I am Marcelo Pena. I am a certified kidney health and wellness and also dialysis consultant slash coach. And I am also a patient. I'm going on 23 years of doing dialysis. I've done peritoneal in-center hemodialysis, in-hospital hemodialysis, nocturnal in-center dialysis, and currently do home hemodialysis. Wow, this is a great group we have today. Let's just dive right in. Osama, when do you normally start having the conversations about dialysis with your patients? Normally, I start the discussion once the patient's estimated GFR, right, the glomerular filtration rate, is less than 30. That officially puts the patients in chronic kidney disease stage four. And I always open by telling the patients that, you know, we're hoping for the best, but we're preparing for the worst. So I'm having this discussion now, just in case you need to go through this process in the future. You definitely don't need it right now, but it's something that we should start talking about to give the patients time to think about their options, to make a decision about what they want, discuss it with their families, come back with any questions or concerns that they may have, rather than, you know, they show up to the office and I'm saying, hey, we need to start on dialysis now. These are your options. Make a decision. The point is to not overwhelm the patient with all this information at the time when they need to make a decision, but to give them the time to think about it. And I also reassure them that most patients who do start dialysis, start dialysis when their estimated GFR is less than 10. 
one way that I like to introduce it to them is, you know, your kidney function is about three times as much as your typical dialysis patient, right? So you do have time left. And that helps calm and reassure the patient and kind of helps them think through and understand what we're talking about rather than worrying so much about, am I going to be starting dialysis tomorrow in a week? And I also reassure them that after we have this discussion, I don't expect you to remember 100% of what I said. Actually, if you remember 50, that's great, you know, but just that when we talk about it in the future, I don't want you to think, wait, I've never heard of any of this before, and it's all new to me. That's great to be able to reassure your patients so far in advance. Andy, when you begin conversations with your patients, how do you discuss and determine who may be a candidate for conservative management versus dialysis versus no treatment? And can you define those a little more clearly? Usually when we talk about no treatment at all, we're talking that the patient really does not want to do dialysis. They've heard about dialysis. I make sure they're fully educated on what dialysis truly means. And they usually go along the lines of, you know, I've heard, I know what dialysis is, and I think, you know, the cure is worse than the disease. I'd rather just not be on it at all, which is totally fine. So that's usually when we talk about no treatment. And conservative treatment, we usually will go into, well, what we can treat you medically as as much as we can as possible until we hit that point of needing dialysis. And then once dialysis is starting, dialysis hits, we can start a patient on that once they've already got the access sites kind of in place. Usually when we're thinking of like dialysis and, and kind of looking at the patient, ideally it should be a patient that you've already established care with, that you've kind of met them several times during the visits. Ideally, this isn't the first time you're seeing the patient and you can kind of get a feel as to like, what do I think the patient, would they be able to ideally handle? Are they pretty independent? Are they pretty knowledgeable about their disease? Would they be ideal for home therapies versus peritoneal uh, dialysis therapies in general? Absolutely. That's great. Osama, how do you go about explaining the different dialysis options to your patients? Normally, I start off by asking the patients what they know about dialysis, right? Kind of see what their landscape is, what their experiences have been. Because if I know what they know, then I can help clarify certain concerns or questions that they have about the dialysis options and mis some misconceptions that they may have, right, about what dialysis entails. And that's the first thing that I do is ask them what they know. And then I let them know that they have different options. So like Andy was saying, I say there's conservative management with medications, there's in-center hemodialysis, there's home hemodialysis, and then there's peritoneal dialysis. I like to break down the dialysis options in my head by telling them two pros and cons of each one. I break it down into home and in-center. And I tell them for the home, you have the benefit of the flexibility of your schedule, but the con is you have to learn how to do it and be an active member of your dialysis treatment you know, whenever you're on the machine. With the in-center, you lose that pro of flexibility because you're assigned a time, a chair, and the days that you're going to be going. But the pro is you don't have to learn how to do any of that. You All you have to do is show up. 
right? So that's how I break it down to them in, in the beginning. And then I go through and explaining, right, uh, what in-center dialysis is, you know, it's mostly three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Treatments are about three and a half to four hours. That doesn't include transportation, of course, to and from the unit. We talk about the fact that you can do that exact same thing at home, right? So that's home hemodialysis. And that the biggest hurdle there too is learning how to cannulate yourself, right? So putting the needles in yourself because ideally you have an AV fistula or an AV graft. And then I discuss peritoneal dialysis where there's no blood involved. And most of the time your treatments are done overnight with the machine. And sometimes then you'll have a day dwell. So after I discuss that, I quickly go over the different axes, the what an arteriovenous fistula is, right? What's the surgeon doing when they're connecting the artery and the vein? If they're not big enough or close enough to connect, that's when they put a graft. And I explain to the patients, it's basically like they put a horseshoe in to connect the two together. Then for peritoneal dialysis, I like to explain that, you know, the catheter is placed below their waistline right? So that they can wear their pants and it's not in the way. The peritoneal membrane is kind of like an empty sac surrounding all of our abdominal organs. And what we do is we put some fluid into that sac. It goes in clear, stays there. And then when it drains, it looks yellow, kind of like urine, right? So there's no blood involved. There's no needles involved with that option. And then I also discuss the training days, right? So I let the patients know that on average, peritoneal dialysis is easier to learn. It's quicker, requires less training days than home hemodialysis. In the beginning, you're going to be investing your time and energy, right? Learning how to do this if you do decide on home, but it's going to pay out afterwards when you only need to come to the unit once a month for your treatments as opposed to 12 times a month for in-center. And last but not least, I also discuss the conservative care approach. And in that care, I really like to categorize the kidney's function into three main things for the patients. One is electrolyte management, two is fluid and volume management, and three is clearance of toxins from the blood. And I let them know that electrolytes we can manage with medications. Fluids, we can give them medications to help them pee more if they're becoming volume overloaded. But the one thing that we really don't have any medication for is the clearance of toxins. So for those, I tell them there are, there are two things. There's the natural filter that you have in your kidneys, and then there's the dialysis filters, right? And that's the only way to really clear those. And as long as that's clear to the patients, then they kind of understand the expectations that they have when on conservative treatment. But I do clarify that whichever route they choose to go down, it's up to them, and it depends on each patient's situations, preferences, experiences, right, and what they feel comfortable with, because that's the most important thing. Whatever it is that they're doing, the most important thing is that the patients feel comfortable and empowered in their choice, but knowledge of their options and what it entails is also important because they can change their mind afterwards and say, hey, I want to try out, you know, peritoneal dialysis. I don't want to do in-center anymore. Or... You know, I try, I started off with peritoneal dialysis. I don't like that. You know, this is a lot of work. I really just want to go to the center and not have to deal with this anymore. So that's kind of how I like to approach the discussion with the patients. Those are some really great points, Osama. And leading right into Marcelo, who 
it sounds like you've experienced every type of dialysis that there is possible. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey from, from how you made your decisions to where you are now in your dialysis experience? Absolutely. I mean, I started dialysis when I was very young. I was still a baby. I was about just turning 15 and it happened post kidney transplant. So I had a kidney transplant that failed due to reoccurring FSGS. And when I started peritoneal dialysis, I, I mean, I was educated, but when you're so young, you really don't know what's going on. And I did that for three years. You know, they put the catheter in my abdomen. And for me, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. It was, it was a little rough just because of the timeline. I mean, it happened right when I was going to high school, right when you're supposed to have your girlfriend, boy, like, you know, little things like that. And I was a very healthy kid. I mean, I would always play sports and, and, and do all this stuff, wrestle. And, and now I had to be more aware, more careful that I had this seven you know, inch long catheter hanging from my abdomen. I would always wear a back brace and tape it up just because I never liked the feeling of it just, you know, just there hanging. Unfortunately, I caught peritonitis one too many times. After that, my peritoneum wall was so destroyed well, first they said, we're going to have to let the, you know, that heal up. And then they transitioned me to go to in-center hemodialysis with the hopes of coming back home. But unfortunately, after three years of doing peritoneal, again, I was still a baby, 17 years old, walking to my first in-center hemodialysis clinic. And that's where the story begins. That is a really amazing journey. And so now you're currently on home hemo, correct? Correct. Yes. And so when you made that decision to go from PD to in-center to nocturnal hemo in-center to home hemo, where you currently are, what were those conversations with your providers like? Did you prompt them? Did the provider prompt them? How did you feel about the information that they gave you to inform your choice of modality? When that happened with the peritoneum stuff and the peritoneal uh, dialysis. They said, we're going to have to let your peritoneum wall heal. We're just going to put you on hemodialysis for a few months and you'll come back home. That's what I heard. You know, that's what I remember. And I just remember after about eight months being in center, I see my doctor and it was like a movie. You know, in the back of my mind, I'm not even 18 yet. And I'm still just like, okay, when am I going home? When am I going home? And then when I saw him, you know, come in center, I asked him, or I didn't even, he didn't even come talk to me that day. I remember I asked the nurse and she went to go talk to him. You know, and I just remember like a movie, I saw them both talking and I saw her lips move. She's like, Mr. Pena wants to know when he's going back home. And all I saw was his head just drop. And he just did like a no, like a no motion. And, you know, to be honest, when I saw that my heart dropped, I was like, he didn't say what I think he just said. He didn't say that I have to do this until I get another kidney transplant or whatever. And then when she came back, she told me the, the news, you know, she was the bearer of bad news. <laughs> she basically said, you're not going back home. And I mean, my heart was broken. And then after that, I mean, I just, I just did in-center hemo for most of my life for 15 years. And I'll be honest with you, I was, I was a very depressed person. I was on all types of medications. I didn't want anybody to talk to me. I would just go there numb myself. I didn't know anything. And there was no support groups. There was nothing, you know, I had to figure everything out by myself. 
So then fast forward, I, cause a lot happened in between that time and I had to get away from my city. <laughs> okay. I had to get away from my city. So I went to Houston, Texas. I was following my dreams of being a music artist and a content creator. And I achieved that. And at that time I could feel that in center during the daytime was too much, too much stress on my heart and my body. I would just feel so I call it the zombie mode. You just want to eat and sleep and go to bed. You know what I mean? Like that's it and rest, recover. So I remember a nurse came and talked to me, you know, maybe like 12 years in. And she's like, well, do you know here in Houston, we actually do nocturnal in-center hemodialysis. And I'm like, what is that? She's like, well, basically it's the same type of dialysis with the blood, the needles and all that, the tube in your fistula. But you come and you basically, you spend the night at a, dialysis, at a dialysis clinic for eight hours, you do treatment. And they said that you're able to, you know, improve your diet a little bit more. You're able to just feel more, uh, more normal. And I said, okay, yeah, let's do it. I did that for about two, three years also. For the first few months, I did feel a little bit better. But I, I will say, I always say this, dialysis is dialysis. You know what I'm saying? There's a certain type of drain you feel when you do PD, but then in-center hemo is just, it's a whole different beast in itself. I stuck with that schedule just because I like doing dialysis at night better. That's just my, that's my choice because after you're done with treatment, you just want to rest. So it was a perfect, you know, combination. I do treatment, I go to sleep and then, you know, just rest. After the whole Houston thing, I came back to Charlotte and a lot happened. I was not doing well again. At this point in time, I probably almost died. So the nurses, they would come like they always do. You know, they would wake me up from my slumber in dialysis. <laughs> like, Mr. Benya, Mr. Benya, like, what? What do you want? They're like, you know, there's a option that you can do hemodialysis at home. And I was like everybody, you know, I was like every, every other patient. I would be like, I don't care about that. I don't want to do that. I already did that when I did PD. I rather just put the work on y'all and then I just go home. I don't want to, I don't want to have like my house turn into a clinic and all this, this and that. But then they said, no, it's a completely different machine. It's a completely different feel. You're, you're able to eat more food. You're able to drink more fluids and more liquids. And I'm just like a grunchy old man. I'm like, ah, <laughs> I don't want it. I want to hear. But then I said, you know what? I need to do something. And I decided to do it. And I'm telling you, that has been the best decision of my life. Home hemodialysis is a game changer. I'm excited. I'm excited to live life. That is an amazing journey. And I'm so glad that there were providers who were put in your life that were able to give you your options and give you the education and always be looking out for what may be best for you. I applaud those providers and certainly you for taking the leap and listening to the information they gave you. Annabelle, what dietary implications are there with PD versus home hemo or even in-center hemo? Yeah, thank you, Dori. So there are several recommendations and the guidelines that we currently utilize are the ones given by the National Kidney Foundation in collaboration with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, which were updated in 2020, which are called the Kadoki Nutrition Guidelines. And interestingly, the recommendations for peritoneal dialysis and hemodialysis are fairly similar. So for example, for patients that their weight is stable and they're metabolically stable, they don't have an infection going on or anything like that, 
the energy recommendations are about 25 to 35 kilocalories per kilo per day, and for protein, about 1 to 1.2 grams per kilo per day. One of the beauties about nutrition and what we do as registered dietitians using medical nutrition therapy is that these guidelines are just guidelines. There are a starting point in which we can kind of like see how the patient is doing, and we decide based on that. So we will assess the patient and evaluate based on their weight, for example, over time, at one time point, et cetera, some biochemical values. So we check the labs every month. So for example, the albumin, phosphorus, potassium, calcium, and all of that. Some of the patient symptoms, for example, how their appetite is, their dietary intake, and other metrics to formulate an individualized plan for each patient. So I really like what Marcelo said, and thank you for sharing your journey, is that sometimes uh, patients on hemodialysis may be on a more restrictive dietary plan just because of the intermittent nature of the treatment versus someone that is on peritoneal dialysis or home hemodialysis. Patients on home chemo or peritoneal dialysis may not need to be so restrictive, for example, in potassium, uh, fluid, et cetera. This is very important because while we know some of these recommendations, it's very important also to gather information from the other team members so we can do some alterations to the nutritional plan. Another thing that I want to make clear is that sometimes we think about the renal diet as putting all of these recommendations together. So a specific protein, a specific phosphorus restriction, a specific potassium restriction, a specific fluid and sodium. But um, as registered dietitians, we are trained to just work on a problem basis. So we don't need to put all of these recommendations together at the same time, because if we try, we really get to a very restrictive diet. And sometimes that's not feasible for the patient. So we just need to understand all of the context of the patient in order to give all of these recommendations in order to formulate the best plan to have the best outcomes for the patients. And obviously that includes nutritional status, but also try to mitigate fatigue, try to give more energy to the patient and make them not feel as restrictive all the time. That's really good that you can really target diet needs to the specific labs. And I, I think that people think of a renal diet and think of it as holistically sort of restrictive. What about with conservative management? What dietary restrictions might there be in that? Yeah, that's a very important point because it is a completely different recommendation. For example, in patients with declining kidney function, we usually um, try to recommend low protein diets. So if we think about what a normal protein recommendation for a patient without um, kidney disease is about 0.8 to one grams per kilo per day. But in conservative management, we try to go a little bit lower. So we sometimes do 0.6 grams per kilo per day, or for a patient, if a patient has a diagnosis of diabetes, sometimes we go higher to 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilo per day. So these diets are often recommended in order to limit the production of nitrogenous products. So because a patient may be having some uh, uremic syndrome, so we're trying to limit the accumulation of those products, for example, urea. So while we recommend these diets, it is very important that these are given by a registered dietitian that is trained in conservative management because these are not also easy to prescribe. If we just say a low protein diet and we don't uh, make up for the rest of the macronutrients, so for example, carbohydrates and energy, a patient may be having a lower energy intake and that may lead to muscle wasting or and weight loss, which is already a significant problem for somebody with advanced chronic kidney disease. Sometimes when we are trying to give this diets for conservative management, uh, we 
sometimes limit animal-based proteins just because they tend to have a little bit more protein and give more plant-based foods. As with anything, and also just like with a patient on dialysis, these are very patient-centered and the registered dietitian, uh, we will assess based on weight, based on biochemical values, clinical values, and other metrics. So while I tend to probably focus a little bit too much on protein, obviously we need to individualize all of the other nutrients. For example, if a patient is already having hyperphosphatemia, we may be um, needing to limit some of phosphorus foods. Uh, if a patient is consuming too much dietary sodium and has hypertension, we also give recommendations for that. So the goal with conservative management on the nutritional side, at least, is to limit the progression of kidney disease and mitigate some of the symptoms of uremic syndromes. These low-protein diets, while they are recommended by our guidelines, are really a major undertaking, particularly in the United States. When we go to the grocery store, a lot of the foods are high-protein, and they advertise that they contain a lot of protein. So in the United States, for example, most adults consume more than the recommendation. For example, the recommendation is 0.821 gram per kilo, and most U.S. adults consume about 1.2 grams per kilo per day. So in order to get to that lower end of a diet, a low-protein diet of 0.6 or 0.8 grams per kilo per day, behavior change is needed, and behavior change is hard. So there's a lot of factors that go into it based on the patient and social support. So having said that, they're not impossible to follow, but the individual and the caregiver need to be ready to make the necessary dietary changes in order to follow that specific plans, which oftentimes mirror being more foods prepared and eaten at home, change the mindset of focusing around protein-based foods to the more other foods like the vegetables, the fruits, the grains and cereals, et cetera, and not too much focus on the high-protein foods. That is a lot to coordinate as a registered dietitian. And so thank you for really explaining and breaking that down for us. Marcelo, in your experience through the different modalities, I know that you had mentioned that one nurse had highlighted some less restrictive dietary needs. What was your experience with changes in dietary restrictions throughout your modalities? Yeah, there was a lot of changes. When I started PD, your diet completely changes. You have to be more aware of like, like uh, Annabelle said, potassium, phosphorus. I mean, it's almost like your world is turned upside down, especially being Latino, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mexican and from Uruguay, we, we love to eat. And you know, when my mom, she knows how to cook. It was so difficult, especially when I started to do in-center hemodialysis, because you almost feel like you can't eat anything, you know, especially when you get the, the list of, of food to, to guide you. So it was just, it's just a matter of communicating with your, your dialysis dietitian and also just finding out what works for you. Because to be honest, for me, I did the, the renal diet for years, for years. I've lost a lot of muscle. I mean, currently I'm, I'm slowly rebuilding it up, but it is not easy because every time you get connected to that machine, it's like the work that you put in to build a little bit of muscle gets drained right out. You can literally see it. So it's a, it's a lot more, um, more effort on your part. And it's just a, it's just a catch 22 because you have no energy. So if you have no energy to go to the gym it's, and then you feel nauseous, so it's, it's, it's rough. It is very interesting that you mentioned that Marcelo. And like, for example, I started training as a dietitian in like 2006 
And one of the worst, I mean, we were scared of the renal diet because it was so restrictive. It was so hard to put a plan together that didn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Luckily, in the last 10-ish years, the research has been advancing a little bit more. So just to kind of like integrate all of those um, more plant-based uh, recommendations, including those plant-based foods that tended to be restricted because, for example, legumes and whole grains and all of that, that are mm -hmm. higher on phosphorus, on potassium and all of that. So now research, for example, has been showing that some of those foods, like the phosphorus is not as easily absorbed in the intestine as some of more readily absorbable sources like in processed foods that contain phosphate uh, containing additives yeah. or for example if we cooked different grains or legumes specifically we cook them a specific way we can limit the amount of phosphorus and the amount of potassium so we can accommodate all of those foods for the different meal plans and I have to tell you I know you guys out there can't see Marcelo but you he is not a person that you would think of that has been on dialysis for 23 years and has been managing kidney disease for his whole life. You, you would look at this man and have no idea that he had any kidney issues. And so, yes, your dialysis team is your team and they're in your corner, but our patients are doing the hard work. They're, they're taking and integrating the information that we're providing to them and deciding what to do with it. And, and when somebody goes like Marcelo does, he looks well, he sounds well, he feels well, he's very active in his community. And it's a real testament to all of your providers and to yourself as how you've integrated that information and knowledge and education to making your life better. We all wish that we had all of our patients just like you. I know that. <laughs> Moving to a psychosocial perspective, Yvette, why might someone choose an in-center hemodialysis versus a PD versus a home hemodialysis from your perspective and, and background? PD and home hemo offer a lot more flexibility in the schedule. So that can be very appealing to patients who work or have an active lifestyle or who are caregivers for young children. Also for patients who enjoy traveling frequently, a home modality might interest them because they don't have to worry about making arrangements for in-center hemodialysis upon their destination. They don't have to worry about their insurance covering them for in-center hemodialysis wherever they're going. So they have that added flexibility. You know, as Osama mentioned earlier, some patients don't care about that flexibility as much as they care about, I only want to do dialysis three times a week. I want to go in, I want to have someone do it for me, and I want to go home. Some patients do not like the idea of having any reminder of dialysis in their home, or, or some patients have said, I don't want my house to feel like a hospital. I want that to be my safe haven. So they don't want anything at home like that. And, or they may not like the frequency that you have to do the home modalities, and they may just prefer to go three times a week. They stay for three, four hours, and they check that off their list and they go about their life. Um, so it really depends on their lifestyle and also social support can play a big role in a patient's decision. For some patients who have a strong support network at home, they may choose to do it, you know, at home because they can get help there. And others who have, do not have a strong social support system may prefer to go to the center. So it's just all taken care of for them. Those are really good highlights when considering those modalities. Melissa, as our nurse, 
Are there other factors that you consider when deciding whether a patient is a good candidate for home dialysis or not? What are you looking at? So there are several things that we look at to determine if a patient is right for home dialysis. Some of them differ if it's PD versus home hemo as well, because yes, they're both at home, but they are a little bit different in what might be expected or what they actually have to do. Well, and for both, we like to do a home visit prior to them starting training to make sure that their living situation is clean. They have the space for the equipment, the supplies. PD is a whole lot of supplies, but again, it's still a lot of things they have to store in their home. It's got to be temperature controlled and all of that. For PD, cleanliness is definitely a big factor um, because you don't you know, want to put the patient at risk for peritonitis. We also want to make sure they have a support system, someone who can also learn alongside of them in case something happens, that they can still have their treatments done. That's especially important having a caregiver or support person with home hemo, because a lot of times people don't want to stick their cell for they can't, you know, given whatever their access may be or where it's at. As far as like pets and things, like I've had people come in and be like, oh, I've heard I absolutely can't have any pets. That is not the case. Of course, we don't want the pets, uh, especially cats, you know, in the room playing with PD tubing and things like that because they can bite it and then that bacteria is going to get in and cause the peritonitis. So I typically talk to patients who have pets and say, you know, if you can close them out of the room especially when you're making those connections and things like that um, and keep that space, you know, clean enough to where there's not animal fur and things like that floating around. It's not an, an absolute no as far as doing home dialysis. The other things with PD that I like to talk about to patients with when they're trying to make this decision is, you know, there are swimming and bathing um, restrictions because of the PD catheter. Um, I had a patient, for instance, that came in and she lives on a houseboat. So obviously PD isn't going to work for her because she's in the lake all of the time. So, you know, we, they can do ocean, um, they can do a private well-maintained pool, but that's basically as far as they can go. So if they're a person who likes to be in lakes and creeks and things like that, and are going to be in the water or have a hot tub or, you know, that's going to help make their decision whether they do, you know, in-center hemo, home hemo, because obviously PD is not going to work for those patients. If they're leaning towards home hemo, you know, I like to talk to them about the fact that they're going to need water hookups and drain lines and things like that, that are going to you know, have to be running across and, but safely and that we can work those things out. But I like to try to make sure they know everything that I can tell them up front. So when they're at home talking about this and trying to figure out which way they're going to go, they have all of those facts. The other thing I talked to them about is, you know, how long they're going to have to be in for training and whether or not they can, if they still work, if they can miss work and come in, and if they have to have a caregiver, if that person can miss work and come in. PD training's not bad. It's, you know, typically a week, week and a half, where home hemo is four days a week for four to six weeks. So that's a, that's a big commitment to come in to learn all the things they have to do to be able to do home hemo. We also look at, you know, their social, how flexible they need to be with their own schedule. 
do they have the compliance? Are they good at taking their meds and being compliant with other things that they do? A lot of times they come to us from in-center and so we can talk to them and see, you know, is this a person that comes to treatment regularly? Are they a person that takes their meds and follows their diet and does all of those things that we lay out in their plan for them? Because if they're not being compliant in center, a lot of times they're not going to be compliant at home either. That's not always the case. I've seen the complete opposite happen, but that's definitely something we want to consider is, you know, are they going to be successful in doing one of these home modalities? And yeah, so that's most of the things that I go over and talk to them about, not only give them the information, but so that I can kind of assess, you know, where they are in their life and what might work for them. Cause then of course we report that back to the nephrologist. So they too know and can help make a decision with the patient. I like that with the patient. And so certainly there's a lot to consider that from a social work perspective, um, what considerations do you have that may be different from a nursing or, or provider perspective in uh, a home candidate? Sure. So when I have a patient who is interested in one of the home modalities, um, we have a whole interdisciplinary evaluation. And so I do a psychosocial evaluation um, and I consider several factors. One of the first questions I always start with is, tell me, why are you interested in PD or home hemo? Like what, what made you interested in, in, in discussing this? And that needs to have, leads to a very natural conversation that helps me get a sense of what they're looking to get out of the modality. And then that leads into how the, you know, home hemo or PD might fit into their current lifestyle and naturally possible barriers tend to come up in the conversation. So they don't feel like they're being interrogated by me. Um, one thing I do always ask about is any psychiatric history. That is important because it can be very difficult to cope with the need for dialysis and, and the requirements. And so it's good to have a heads up um, into their history. And so we can talk a little bit about how they're coping with the need for dialysis. Are they seeing a psychologist? Are they being followed by a psychiatrist, et cetera, et cetera. And I am looking at it from a specific perspective, but I do tend to reiterate some of the things that the nephrologist or the nurse have already said to the patients, because when they're having these conversations with the multiple providers, they are often overwhelmed and anxious. And so not everything that's told to them is absorbed. So I've found that having things repeated can be very helpful. For instance, sometimes I'll mention something that you would think is quote unquote as basic as, as knowing that for PD, they need to dialyze on a daily basis. And I'm sure they were told that, but they were very overwhelmed. And the patient will look at me shocked and say, what? I I have to do this every day. I had no idea I have to do this every day. So it's often just too much to take in at once. So it helps to have every provider kind of repeat it. And then, you know, we take our little twist um, and our perspective on the topic. It's very important to make sure that they understand the frequency and the timing and, and everything that is required of them to make sure that this is the best option for them so they can be the healthiest that they can be. And, you know, I've had patients who completed training or were just about to complete training and then suddenly decided to switch to in-center 
because the supplies or the and or the frequency for home hemo or PD were just too much for them to handle when push came to shove. So in an effort to avoid situations like that, during my psychosocial evaluation, I always reiterate the frequency and the duration of dialysis treatments at home. Um, and as Melissa mentioned, the amount of supplies that they should expect to fill their home, make sure they've seen a picture that they really understand because we've had patients that have gotten their first delivery and call up and say, I can't do this, I need to switch. We also look into what their living situation is like. It's very important that they have stable housing. Are they sharing a room in their home? Will they have their own private space to dialyze? I've evaluated patients who were very interested in PD or home hemo, and everything seemed great, except unfortunately, they did not have a private space in their home where they could you know, for PD, close the door and do their dialysis where they could really have a sanitary environment. And unfortunately, they were not a candidate at that point. And it's also very important to get a picture of their responsibilities outside of dialysis, such as are they the primary caregiver for a young child or for an elderly family member? You know, is this going to be too much to take on and to add on to their current responsibilities? Are they working? If they're working, what's their schedule like? Will they be able to manage, you know, adding this responsibility on? Will they have enough time to come home from work, set up their dialysis, stylize and, you know, and then continue on? Or will it just be too stressful and overwhelming? Some patients have come and said, you know, I can't do this. I need to go in center because I just feel like I go to work, I come home, I dialyze and I go to work again. And it's just too much. And also, as Melissa mentioned, it's really important to know the level of compliance the patient has shown in the past. So whether that be with their medical appointments, medications, or if they're transferring from another type of dialysis modality, how, you know, what was their compliance like? there because while that's not always a predictor of their compliance with this new modality, it oftentimes is. Those are some really great points. And you know, I think if anybody is interested in any of these modalities, it's really important to discuss with your care team if they are eligible for a certain modality. And so, you know, I think that we've had such a really great conversation today and have covered so much of the different considerations in our different modalities. I think it's really important to remember that one size does not fit all with regards to treatment, with regards to diet, with regards to psychosocial considerations. So if you've met one patient that does hemo that's non-compliant, you've met one patient that does hemo that's non-compliant, and it's important not to replicate that over other patients. And as Marcelo has explored for us, nothing is set in stone. You can go back and forth to different modalities. Your provider may think that you can return to a modality for whatever reason you may not be able to return to and, and go on to a different one. There's lots of options. And when we involve our patients in their care decisions and their healthcare options and modality options, we know that their level of commitment and their compliance will significantly improve. I want to say thank you to all of our panel members for their contributions to this very important discussion and to 
to all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us on this ride of the Kidney Commute. And remember that eligible audiences can earn CE credit for listening to this episode by clicking the link in the episode description. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please email the team at nkfpodcast at kidney.org and stay tuned for future huddles. And in the meantime, continue to let new perspectives inspire your practice.